Good morning, church. If you think my voice sounds a little weird, it's because it does. Something going on nasally. I might be sick. Just as a warning, if you're that kind of person, I want you to know. All right, so we have been in the book of Mark for some time now, and we've taken some breaks intermittently. In, in the last month or so, we've taken more breaks than normal, and we did this, this thing we felt the Spirit lead us to jump ahead, not just for convenience, but to emphasize on Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Christ, we jumped ahead in the book of Mark. And then we went back and we're finishing up with where we left off. And so the last that we heard, Jesus has really upset some religious leaders. And this was something pretty common, but this, at this point, they, their anger level is at a, a critical high. They're livid is a good word for it. Uh, he has been worshipped by the multitudes, like hundreds of people gathered as he entered Jerusalem on a donkey, laid out the palm branch carpet. I mean, they were praising him Hosanna. They were praising him as Messiah, their deliverer, which is upsetting to the religious leaders who don't believe he's that, or at least they would rather them uh, the people continue to worship their leadership. And, and that was Monday. And then on Tuesday, he enters the, the temple, upset about the money changing and things going on. And so he started flipping some tables and freeing the doves and cracking a whip like he was. That's literal. He cracked a whip. Isn't that awesome? And so he, he's upsetting the status quo. And, and again, adding to the fire that's burning in these religious leaders. To make matters worse, he then moves aside on this same day, or, and he, he teaches, for, like the temple set up in a way that they had like these little porches. And so he goes to the side after having tossed the tables, and crowds gather, and he continues to teach, and he teaches a parable that pretty clear to the religious leaders and to the people there was directed at them. And he calls them, virtually, he calls them self-centered, murderous tenants, not stewarding well what the Lord has given them to steward. And not only have they failed to steward it well, they've killed and beaten the messengers of God. And they will, they haven't yet, but they will kill the very beloved son of God. These are both of those, uh, the table tossing and the parable where sermons taught Jared and Joseph taught those. They're available if you want to go dig into that deeper because there's a lot of symbolism, a lot of meaning there. But point here is that these religious leaders are very upset now about what's going on here. They were already against Jesus, but now he's causing all kinds of trouble on this very special time of the year for them. And they're livid. So we pick it up. I'm going to actually read verse 12, which was a part of the last sermon. And then we'll pick it up in Mark Chapter 12, verse 13. Verse 12 says, it's not on the screen, but verse 12 says, And they, the religious leaders, were seeking to arrest him, Jesus, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. All right, so where they went away was to gather together to figure out what are we going to do about this Jesus guy. And let's pick it up in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. 
for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. All right, so this is a familiar story to many church people. Right? You guys heard this before? Typically, when things are very familiar, we just breeze over them, or we altogether ignore them. I'm going to charge you this morning, as we often do, dig in, like look deeper. Even though this is familiar, you get it, seems to make sense, you don't really feel like you need an explanation, trust that there's more, because there certainly is. And, and don't ignore the familiar things, because then you're at risk for missing very significant things. And as a way of uh, preparing us to really dig in, we need better context. But more than that, we really need to trust the Spirit to lead us. Because when you, when you look at Scripture, like a passage like this, there is one meaning. Scripture doesn't have like many meanings. Like you can't sit in a room full of people and say, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? And everyone has a different meaning. There's not even two different meanings. There's one meaning of Scripture. Altogether, it's this grand narrative. It's the story of God boasting in Himself. It's God making clear to us how awesome He is through this work of the gospel that He would save us though we would turn from Him. And all of these smaller stories within tie to that larger story, bringing us to understand more clearly who this God is, stirring in us a great affection for this God that we would worship Him more and more. So if you read that passage and all you get out of it is, okay, pay your taxes, it's probably not going to stir in you this great affection to worship God more and more. At least it doesn't for me. It kind of peeves me, actually. So, in order to clearly see what the meaning is, though, and let, let me be clear, there's one meaning, but there could be many applications. So, don't hear me say it, you can only apply it one way. There could be many applications, but there's one meaning. In order to truly know, it takes study, it takes understanding context, understanding all of Mark and not just that bit of Mark, understanding all of Scripture, not just this book of Scripture. But all of this is dependent on the work of the Spirit in us, bringing us to see truth. Because atheists study the Bible and they know it better than many Christians. But still, if the Spirit doesn't reveal truth and give us belief, it's all for nothing. So that being said, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I praise you that we have it in our hands in a language we can understand by your sovereignty. You have done all of this. You've given us this opportunity to to dig in and to feast on this truth, to find it, to fill us and give us life. You are breathing in us life through your very words, the words that have created the universe So let us see the weight of this text, not as a small passage in Scripture that we're preaching this week, but as part of this grand story that gives us freedom in Christ, gives us life for eternity to worship a God who satisfies us in every way. Let us be moved by more than just paying taxes, but that we would see the greater purpose, that we would dig in, that we would see the life available here in this passage. 
Be with me, Lord, as I attempt, as broken and flawed as I might be, to proclaim truth. God, let, let it be that I proclaim truth, that your spirit would move in the hearts of all who hear and rescue us from damnation. Not because I'm awesome and I preached a good sermon, but because you are awesome and you reveal it through this proclamation of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, again, we're in this final week of the life of Christ before crucifixion, the, week, the Passion Week, Monday, Tuesday. This is Wednesday now. And this is, this is uh, Jesus entering the temple, turning the tables, cleansing the temple is what he was doing. And, and he has positioned himself before the people, teaching truth, and being attacked time and again by these religious leaders of different kinds. So chapter 11 and chapter 12, we see different religious leaders coming to Jesus to attack him. They're all the same agenda. They want to see him fail. They want to see him his downfall. Whether it has to be Rome arrest and kill him or the people turn against him and abandon him. They want to see it happen. And ultimately, they do see it happen. Just not in the way they expect it to. And then they don't, none of them see the resurrection happening. And so Jesus is in total control of all of this. And it's very evident in this story today that he has at no point been tricked by them, though they are attempting to. He has at no point been captured by them. He gives up his life. He's always in control. Don't be misled by what this passage can seem. It seems like they're doing a really good job. In fact, I'm going to talk a little bit about how their trap is actually a really good trap. But... Jesus has never lost control. Though these religious leaders come at him, and, and namely, there's a group of religious leaders uh, that are led by a council of 71 known as the Sanhedrin, if you care. The Sanhedrin is made up of Pharisees who are the, <clears throat> who are the conservatives of the bunch. I, I may make some references to political-sounding things. It's okay for you to use your understanding of politics, Democrats, Republican, whatever you want. It's okay for us to understand government as American government versus Roman government. Don't take those things too far, though. This is a totally different context, totally different people, different type of government, but certainly applicable in many ways. So when I say conservatives, it's okay for you to think conservatives. That's what I'm saying. So the Pharisees are conservatives. The Sadducees are more liberal. And the Sadducees are also more lenient on Uh, Not just religious things, but political things. Pharisees don't care all that much about politics. They just kind of submit themselves to the system because they don't want to die. And and then there's the scribes, also a part of the Sanhedrin. The scribes are the protectors of the law. They're the ones transcribing by the name. They write down the law. They protect the law. Uh, They are going to. That's the lawyer that came to Jesus to ask him what the most important law is. That's he's a a scribe. And then uh, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. All right, and so. We have these different types of religious leaders, but altogether, they're against Jesus. There's some others, one not mentioned in the Bible, the Essenes, they, they don't like Roman government so much so that they've removed themselves from the culture. They kind of live off in the desert, create their own communities. If you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're responsible for that, and that's why we found them in the desert, and we didn't know they were there. Um, that's a religious group there. And then there are also the less uh, organized group, the Zealots, and the Zealots are just rebels, they are, they're not leaving. This is their place. They're going to stand against this government. Peter is a zealot. He's a little bit crazy. Barabbas was so far crazy that he started killing people and got arrested for it. So people who resist the government in that way. So these different Jews who want 
structure. They want their homeland. They want their rules. And they deal with it in different ways. This is people. This is how we function. We form these groups based on our opinions about how we should relate to the world. So now in this passage, we see another group named the Herodians. Now the Herodians are basically a little more liberal. Sadducees. They totally connect with the Roman government. They submit themselves to the Roman government. They think it's even a good thing. And, and the Herodians are very sympathetic, especially to Herod. That's where they get their name. So Herod, we act, I'm going to talk about this in a minute. We actually have a few Herods now, sons of King Herod the Great. And they are governing the, the provinces. So this, the Herodians report directly to Rome. And it's important for us to know that, to understand what's going on in this story. So this group is far more concerned with political matters than religious matters. Uh, and for good reason, they're, they're loyal to Rome. And so they're snitches. They're going to tell. And that's why they're there. It was intentional. And so I guess I, I'm going to give you a lot of history. I don't always like when there's history, but that's why I try to avoid it sometimes. I study it, and I'm like, is this, does this matter? If it matters, I'll tell you. Today it really matters. So you're going to get a lot of history. But the, uh, the degree to which the Jews were against the Herodians is clear at that point. The, the Pharisees didn't like Rome. The Herodians loved Rome. And they find a common enemy in Jesus. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend comes into play. All right, so let's look in verse 13. <clears throat> And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. So they is the Sanhedrin. They sent the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care for, about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So they... They seek to set a trap. And the Greek word here for this trap is like an animal trap. It's like a hunting gear. They want to bait him in and trap him so he can't get out by, by his answer. They're going to ask him a question and they're going to trap him. He's not going to have a way out. They think they have this brilliant plan to catch him by this question, should we pay taxes? There is no doubt that there's major tension in the air right now. In fact, this whole entire encounter is, is riddled with awkwardness. First of all, the th- things that they're saying is kind of weird. Nobody would expect them to say these kind things to Jesus. And so it's already kind of weird when they start. And then they ask this question and you can just feel it. So when we read narratives, we have to feel it. So actually like imagine the, like the sand beneath your feet and the smells in the air. Like there's debris on the ground because Jesus just flipped tables the other day and there's like bird feathers in the corner. Like, like be there. And now it's silent and awkward because they just asked Jesus if we should pay taxes. This is increased by the, the claims Jesus has made to, to represent a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And that's against the Roman government and the Herodians are in the room. So if you don't know about Rome, the Roman Empire is kind of a big deal. Back in the day, they were like really running stuff. Like they had it under control. And around 63 BC, Rome conquered Palestine. And that's this area we're in right now. So they gave, they gave ruling control over King Herod the Great. And he, he was to rule over Palestine. And they really trusted this guy. So he got to do a lot of what he wanted to do. King, the, 
King Herod the Great was the guy who sent out the edict to have the babies killed trying to get rid of Jesus. That's that King Herod. And so, so he was doing well for a while, but he got sick and he died. And so they divided the land into providences three because he had three sons. And uh, the areas were divided. The north where Galilee is, that's Jesus' hometown area, that was given to King, or Herod Antipas, which is, uh, he did a fairly good job, but he wasn't as trusted as his father. That's, so the Galilee area, Herod Antipas. And then Herod Philip, just to the east of that, was given control over that region. And then uh, Herod Archelaus gave, got the most of it. He got Judea and Samaria, the, this land to the south. Now, for these men who were trusted by Rome, but not as much trusted as King Herod, there were some things put in place just in case there was an uprising and they lost control. And Rome had this opportunity to come in and declare martial law. And they would report directly to Caesar. So Antipas did pretty well, and Philip did pretty well, and Archelaus really screwed things up very quickly. And that's exactly what happened. Rome came in, sent their soldiers in, and they were occupying Jerusalem, because that's in Judea, and everybody reported directly to Caesar. Now, in order for them to actually send soldiers to keep them fed, to, to watch after these people, they had to uh, give them some money. So what do good governments do? They tax the people. So they had sales tax, like we have sales tax. They had income tax, like we have income tax. But they also had a tax called a poll tax, which is like a head tax. It's, it's a census tax. And that's what we're talking about here in this passage. We have this poll tax. And we know it's that because the, the Greek word used is just a transliteration of the Latin word that's census. So that's the type of tax. It's a census tax. And, and why does all this matter? Well, because Rome had to take care of their soldiers and they had to tax the people to do so. And so in essence... The Jews are paying for their own oppression. This is the tax we're talking about. So Jesus, should we continue to pay Rome to oppress us? Is the question. In front of all these people who are following Jesus and hearing about his kingdom and in front of the Herodians. This isn't anything new to these people either. About 25 years before this, there was this guy named Judas of Galilee. And Judas of Galilee is not any Judas we know in the Bible. Well, he actually is. I'll tell you in a minute. But he's not Judas that we know with Jesus. And he's not the other Judas nobody ever talks about. He is a a Jew that hates the system. So he thinks any Jew that pays this poll tax is a coward devoting themselves to Rome. He's a zealot. He hates it. So he, he... proclaims the kingdom of God, Judas of Galilee, proclaims the kingdom of God and says, this is my kingdom. If you're not loyal to that kingdom, I'm coming after you. And so he gets together a bunch of guys who are willing to revolt with him and he puts together this little army and he goes into Jerusalem and he tries to cleanse the temple, like get rid of all the foreigners out of the temple because things are going wrong. This is 25 years before this moment. So Jesus was like a toddler. All right. And, And quickly, Rome comes down on Judas and kills him. It's just over. And with him dies the revolt. It's against the Roman government because of the poll tax. This man claiming the kingdom of God tries to cleanse the temple. He's conquered and killed. So you've got to think that these Pharisees are thinking, Jesus, 
claims the kingdom of God. He's just cleansed the temple. If we can just get him to say he's against the poll tax, Rome will take him. Let's make sure it happens. Let's bring the Herodians along with us. It's really a brilliant trap. It seems like it's, this is going to work. I told you I was going to mention Judas is in Scripture if you want to text. Acts 5, 37. It says, Judas the Galilean rose up in the, in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. Just to give you some context. So this is, this is that's in there because this is a, a history that these people know. Like this is like if you go to Oklahoma and you say, hey, you remember the Oklahoma City bombing? They're going to know everything about it. This isn't that long ago. This is their hometown, a history they know. And Rome has proven themselves to be against any uprising against their government. And so they asked Jesus, should we pay this tax? If he says, no, we shouldn't pay the tax, then he'll keep his people because he's standing for the kingdom. They expect him to say no. That's why they lay on the flattery. We know that you don't care about the Herodians being here. You stand for the kingdom of God. You're going to speak the truth. We know that. So should we pay taxes? That's what they're saying. They expect him to say no. And then he's done. But if he decides to instead spare his life, if he wants to save his life, he'll say yes. And even if he says yes, we win. Because then all his people are going to desert him. It's a win-win. So Jesus, should we pay these taxes? A masterfully crafted trap. And the room's full of tension and awkward silence. Until Jesus, like he always does, has the perfect answer. Verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he says to them, why put me to the test? Now this is, this is a question, like Jesus often answers questions with questions. Why put me to the test? And this test, this way of testing is the same way Satan tested Jesus in the wilderness. Just tempting him to turn against what he believes to gain for himself. Like every human being faces. Do you want to build the kingdom of God or do you want to build your kingdom? Only for Jesus, they're one and the same. So he truly cannot be tempted. So this insincere flattery that's, that's lavished on him, like we know you're, you're not going to turn against God. We know you're going to speak what's true. It's got to be known to everyone in the room, this is, not, this is not real. I know these guys, just yesterday they were talking trash. This can't be real. And certainly Jesus knows. So his response is, knowing their hypocrisy, why put me to the test? And we need to take a pause here because flattery is something very sneaky. Flattery is like gossip for us. You hear it all the time, and it just doesn't seem sinful. But it will kill you like any other sin. It just sneaks in slowly, puffs people up with pride, and it, and it gains for yourself the, the attention, the affection that you desire from people. In essence, it's you building your kingdom, trying to get people on your side to think you're something special, to like you. And we must kill it. It's sin. It kills us if we don't kill it. 
And there's scripture all over the place warning against flattery. This flattery that they would try to lure Jesus in to puff him up so that they can see him fall. He knows what they're up to and he calls them out on their hypocrisy. So let me make sure you understand Jesus sees through your hypocrisy. He sees through the flattery. He knows exactly who you are no matter what you present yourself as. You may fool some people, but you will never fool God. What's what's more clear is there's greater freedom in trusting yourself to the kingdom of God than building your own kingdom. There's more to enjoy than you could ever imagine than anything you could gain for yourself by the flattery of men. Hypocrisy is foolish, but hypocrisy is also wicked. Flattery is evil. It's pretending to be something you're not so that you can establish your own kingdom for selfish gain. You're trying to win people over or conquer people to enslave them to your kingdom. You want them to like you. You want them to have your back. It's just like Caesar enslaving the Jews. And this poll tax in Caesar's mind is this way of, this is, this is your privilege as a subject of Caesar. You get to pay me this tax. And it creeps in. As creepy as, as creepy-ish, I don't know. <laughs> as creepily as it travels. There you go. As sneaky as it is, we must be sneakier. We need to be vigilant against flattery. We need to catch it, just like we do gossip. Oh, actually, we're failing at that also. Let's catch it. Let's hear it and shut it down. When people come to you and they gossip, they talk about someone else, your response should be, I'm not going to hear that. If you've got a problem with that person, go to that person. It's loving for you to do that. Instead, we think the most loving thing I do is just hear you out. Go ahead and vent. It's like, I don't like it, so it's easy for me to say, I don't want to hear that. It's a good excuse. We're not supposed to be talking about this. We've got to hate it. And flattery is even worse because it feels so right. You can sincerely like someone's jeans or shoes or whatever. And you're like, I like your jeans. But there's something mixed in with that. Like, you're, like you're, you want them to be encouraged because they have nice jeans. It's probably a bad example. They have nice jeans. But you also want them to like you because you like their jeans. You know what I'm saying? Like, if, like for my wife, if I tell her you're beautiful, you're wonderful, I'm so glad you're my wife. I tell her these things a lot because she is beautiful, wonderful. I'm glad you're my wife. Mixed into, though I, I sincerely want her to be encouraged. Mixed in with that is this, she's going to like me a little more. She's going to serve me a little more. She's going to appreciate me a little more. Whose kingdom is that about? My kingdom. I'm trying to enslave her to me. You see how wicked this is. And it's so sneaky. You got to kill it or it kills us. It kills you. It kills the church. It destroys lives. Flattery destroys lives. Instead, the motivations of my heart. So all of this is a heart issue. I could use the same words, you're amazing, you're beautiful, and my heart is, I want you to see God has made you who you are. He is, he is ridding you of the sin in your life so you can be more beautiful in Christ. Be encouraged. You belong to Jesus. Be encouraged. God has made you who you are. That's what I want her to hear. But if I just keep it like, hey, look, you're awesome, thanks. 
Just be intentional with your language. Check your heart often. Be careful with the words that come out of your mouth. Remember whose kingdom you're building. And God warns against flattery several times as most explicit ones in Scripture, Psalms or Psalm 5, 9. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Proverb 26, 28. A lying tongue hates its victims. A flattering mouth works ruin. Proverb 29, 5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. He's setting a trap. Jesus does not care for hypocrisy to say the very least. In Matthew, he tells the same story that we're looking at today. And he goes on later in that day to come back to the Pharisees. And three times he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He goes on to say, Woe to you, blind guides, fools, blind men. You blind men, you serpents, you brood of vipers, sons of hell. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And of course, these woes, just as the rhetorical question he's asking in Mark chapter 12, this question, why do you hypocrites tempt me? When Jesus asks a question, when the Lord asks us a question, he's not inquiring for information. He's omniscient. He knows everything. When he's asking us a question, he's asking us to examine ourselves. When he says to Adam in the garden, where are you? He doesn't doesn't even know where where Adam is. He doesn't even need a GPS, find a friend. He, He knows where Adam is. He's asking Adam, where are you? Why have you run to hide? When he says to Cain, where's your brother? He doesn't need to know that he killed his brother. He wants Cain to know you're responsible for your brother. And you've killed him. When he, when he asks Peter, who is my sheep? Do you love them? Take care of them. He's not, he's not asking him to explain to him how the church works and who the sheep of the shepherd are. He wants Peter to be reminded who Christ is, who belongs to Christ, and the responsibility he carries as a shepherd. And when he asks these Pharisees time and again, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why do you test me? Believe it or not, he's being gracious to them. He's calling them out of their sin. He's, he's asking them to examine themselves. Why do you want to destroy me? How can you be so blind? You teachers of the law. You teach scripture. How are you missing it? I'm the God of creation and you seek to destroy me. I gave you life. I formed you in your mother's womb. I know you better than you know yourself. Why are you doing these things? I've commanded the law that you so love. Why are you against me? Why do you seek to put me to death like I'm the enemy? He's begging them to repent, though he knows they won't. For us, this great warning, it's still still for us. And we are spared. We have the full scripture. We see our tendencies to cling to the law, to flatter, to turn against Christ, to build our own kingdoms. We have this opportunity to repent that they missed. 
There's one major flaw in their plan. The way of flattering Jesus, speaking highly of Him. He, you teach the law of God. You love the law of God. You never want to, you're never swayed by the people in the room. You're always going to speak truth. They don't mean any of this. And it probably hurts them to say it. But the problem is, all of it's true. He can't be puffed up to fall because they can't speak highly enough about Him. It's true about Him. And their attempts of flattery totally fail. So when they ask Him the question, He's not caught off guard. He's silly hypocrites. And He says to them, Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. So a denarius is a a uh, (laughs) dime-sized coin. I have a picture of it. It's, that's, not as, that's not the real size of it. It's really big. It's much smaller. But I want you to be able to see it. So, All right, so we actually have tons of these in uh, museums. Uh, denarius is uh, specifically the coin used to pay the poll tax. It's, about, it's equivalent to about a day's labor of uh, a common worker. So it's not very much for those who make more than that. And even for the common worker, it's really not that much. The, the cost of it isn't that big of a deal. It's the principle that is being questioned. And so it's not a very high tax, but they don't want to pay it because they don't want to fund their oppression. And inscribed in it in Latin is, I'm going to read it in English, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of God, or son of the divine Augustus. And on the, on the flip side, the Latin is uh, Pontiflex Maximus, which means high priest. And that, and that chair there is a throne, and it's a tribute to his mother, many scholars believe, Livia is his mom. Um, and so he's making a statement with this coin. I own you. I'm the son of God. I'm the high priest. You come to me and you pay for your oppression. You know, Jesus doesn't have one because he's poor. Um, but also, this is a graven image. I mean, I mean, I don't know how you get around that. So kind of awkwardly, the Pharisees happen to have one. <laughs> Pull it out of their pocket. Oh, I have one here. I found it on the ground. And they give it to him. And he says to them, <clears throat> Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So simple, yet so profound. The, the image, the inscription, the silver that the coin is made of, all of it belongs to Caesar. So give it to him. So, what right do we have to deny Caesar what already belongs to him? Let's just give it to him. It's kind of weird because they really thought he was going to say no. But instead he says, well look, whose face is on this? I mean, literally, his name is on it. Give it to him. So more than that, Jesus is acknowledging something for us. The legitimacy of human government. So though there was all these questions among the people, like do we really submit ourselves to this, though we're under the authority of God, it was, it was never really clear what they should do. They just were in captivity like Israelites have always been. So, well, let's just do this again. And they were just submitting themselves to Caesar. And now they have Jesus here 
The people standing around have to be really curious. What's he going to say? And he says, well, look, it's his face. It's his name. Give it to him. Jesus, in this moment, is distancing himself from this, this political anarchy that could start an uprising. Like if he just said, no, all these people that are gathered would join him as an army. But he's resisting that. Because Jesus doesn't want to be arrested as this rebel against Rome. That's not, that's not why they arrest him. His charge is blasphemy of God. He claims to be God. So even though the time is really close, it's still not yet time. But also, the words he says are true. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. This particular tax, among all the taxes, is the most offensive. If he was going to start a revolt, it would be because of this. But God has ordained the family, God has ordained the church, and God has ordained government. He puts government in their place. He's sovereign over all things, as flawed as the government may be. It's by his design that they be in control. The government has a responsibility under the sovereignty of God to make the laws and to enforce the laws. And the people have a responsibility under the sovereignty of God to obey. The Apostle Paul clarifies this in Romans chapter 13. Most explicitly, anywhere in Scripture, he says, I'm not going to read all of it, but verses 1-7 through covers it. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of the conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Let that sink in. The authorities are ministers of God. Babylon, ministers of God. Rome, ministers of God. President Obama was a minister of God. President Trump is a minister of God. Attending to this very thing. Smaller authorities also. Police officers, ministers of God. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. He also writes, it's not on the screen, but he also writes to Timothy, Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, about a very similar thing. And Peter, the, the passage we read to start our worship gathering, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, he, Peter writes the same thing. We had this necessity to submit ourselves to the governing authority. But listen, I don't expect my government to act in Christian ways. I don't, I don't think they could. They're not the church. There's no such thing as a Christian government. If you have some ability to demonstrate to me through Scripture that there is, I'd be more than welcome to hear you out. I'm almost certain I'll disagree with you at the end. Because I've searched for this trying to understand this concept that, that America is Christian somehow. First of all, the word Christian is a noun. We shouldn't be using it as an adjective. There's no Christian artists. There's no Christian books, Christian bookstores. We have this Christian t-shirt. What are we talking about? We belong to Christ, so we're Christians. Anything Kendrick does is Christian because Kendrick is a Christian, if you want to use an adjective. 
But the government can't be Christian. There can't be a Christian nation. There never has been one and there never will be until Christ establishes his eternal kingdom. However, we are commanded to submit to the authority placed over us and it has been instituted by our sovereign Lord who we can trust always is for our good. We are called according to his purpose. Scripture is very clear. It's not like something we have to guess at. It's very clear. We submit ourselves to the authority of the government. We are to determine what is good, though, through our lens of the gospel. We're to determine what is good, and we're to follow, we're to follow those good laws. So following the laws of the land only applies if they are in agreement with the law of the Lord. Determining what is good, that is, if anything in the law is opposed to God's ultimate authority, we're against it without hesitation. Anything against our biblical morality, the dignity of human life, we're against it without hesitation. We have the freedom to rebel against authority when they rebel against our God. For all that is good and neutral, we without hesitation obey. The authority, the government is a minister of God and we are to subject ourselves to that governing ministry. So we'll talk more about this concept uh, in July. Spoiler alert. <laughs> we haven't really talked about announcing this, but we will be um, looking at the book of Daniel this July, starting in July. Very excited about it. Daniel has a lot to say about this concept because they were taken captive into Babylon and had to subject themselves to some things. So we'll save that. You got to come now. You got to be here. All right. Verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. A commentator and pastor, Ken Hughes, wrote about this passage. The statement by our Lord was not only astounding at the instant it was uttered, but it is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. Now, I, could, I was going to just say something similar to that. I don't like using words like ever and universally. I just feel like they're too much. So Kent, Kent Hughes, a man much more educated than I am on both worldly matters and biblical matters, says, statement of Christ here is the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. So that answers this question I had. They marveled at him. What do they have to marvel about? It seems simple to me. Other scholars have said things like, never before has this point, or never before has this point has such a thing been taught in the history. So at this point in history, never before has anything remotely close to this been taught, this, this way of seeing government and divinity separate. The kingdom of God separate than the kingdoms of earth. Christ is doing something revolutionary, though he's not starting a revolt. So what's so profound, and what's what causes them to marvel is, first of all, it's the first time a theory of limited government has ever been talked about. Historically, up until now, every civilization has just seen the government as authoritative, like the same authority as the gods. 
It was just, everybody thought that's how it worked. So that was the way it was in, in Greece. That's the way that Rome operated before them even. That's how Babylon operated. Like just the ruling authority is God. We do what they say, no hesitation. But Christ here is making a distinction. Because he says, render to Caesar what Caesar also render to God what is God's. So Jesus says, we're able to submit to governmental authority according to what is owed to them, but we should not submit to them as our God. That's crazy talk. See what he's doing here. Jesus, the Son of God, the high priest, is holding up a coin that says, Son of God, high priest, and has Caesar's face on it. Rather than like tossing it aside, calling it blasphemous, because it is, he says, just give this to Caesar. It's his. It's got his name on it. But give to God what belongs to God. This word render, a lot of translations don't give render, they say give, but render is really important here. Rendering something is not just giving it, it's, it's giving what is owed. Like it's giving what belongs to. This isn't mine, so I'm going to render it to you. It's similar to surrender. Surrender, you're giving your, you weren't, you weren't theirs, but now you're giving yourself to them, so you are theirs. Rendering is just giving it to them because... It's already theirs. So what's to be rendered to God then? What do we owe to God? What are the things of God? Everything, right? But specifically, we determine the coin belongs to Caesar because it bears his image. I hope it's obvious. We, made in the image of God, bear his image So what do we give to Him? Ourselves. Everything. You are God's. You belong to God. I think maybe we focus too much on the first part of this commandment, the the render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and we miss the significance of this second part, render to God what is God's. This phrase says so much more than it seems. Consider how desperate these people are in this environment. Desperate to be freed from Roman oppression. Also desperate for food because many of them are poor and starving. Desperate for deliverance from their suffering from injustice. And desperate for healing because they're sick and dying and don't have any means to be healed. And Jesus has shown up healing the sick. Restoring the brokenness. Giving sight to the blind. Opening deaf ears. A very physical presence of deliverance. Establishing the kingdom of God with all that He says and does. Proclaiming truth. And now this opportunity before these people, before the Herodians, holding the coin. He has this opportunity to say, Caesar's not God, I am. And he says it, but in a way that they don't really catch it. But let's not miss it. He is an incomparable king of kings. He doesn't need He doesn't need to make that point right now. There's no category for what he is, even if he made the point. How can we join the revolution that they don't even see as being started 
we render to God what is God's. Pay your taxes, but remember whose kingdom you actually belong to. As difficult as it may be to submit ourselves to governing authorities that we disagree with, it's easy if you agree with them. If you voted for the guy in office, it's easier, I think. But when we don't get our way, we'd rather riot as if it's going to change something. Jesus is saying here, don't riot. Unless there's injustice. Unless it's against the laws of God. Unless people are being robbed of their dignity. Unless we're killing millions of babies. If it becomes a law that I have to marry homosexuals, I will not do it. If it becomes a law that we have to take pills that are abortive, I will not do it. If it becomes a law that I have to fund something that kills babies, we'll fight it, we'll riot. We must. Like, when we think about church being separate from the government, think clearly. It is. But we have a place in this culture. We must speak for what is right. We must work to establish the kingdom of God, knowing that we already have victory. Christ has already done everything necessary. But in order to do that, we must render to God what is God's. And we can't do that because we're stupid. We're selfish. We want power. We want comfort. We want recognition. We want our kingdom. We'll do whatever it takes to gain power and comfort and fame. We'll do whatever it takes. If you say you won't, you're lying. In the flesh, we do whatever it takes to gain it and to hold on to it. We live for ourselves. How much money, time, energy do you put into building your kingdom? And just act like it's not true. I know I do. I'm with you. I'm saying you. Us. We're so selfish we don't even realize it. Virtually every decision we make is about our kingdom. About what we can gain for ourselves. What comfort we can enjoy. What satisfaction we can have. Even the things that we would try to make selfless are so, so selfish. We desperately need to render to Caesar what Caesar's, but more so to render to God what is God's, ourselves. It's not us. It's not about us. It's not our kingdom. Not only do we fight to gain comfort and power, but our hunger for it forces us to treat people like we shouldn't treat people, and it drives us and how we, how we treat other people. If, we gain, if I can gain vir- these virtues, power and comfort, if I can gain recognition from you, then I'll let you in my life. If you can add to my life, if you can add to my kingdom, I'll let you in. And either I'll partner with you, and then somewhere down the line, I'll crush you so that I can just take your kingdom into my kingdom, or I'll, I'll just subject you from the beginning with my flattery and smooth talk, so that you become a subject of my kingdom. I'll destroy you in order to build my kingdom. 
I'll do it stealthily because I don't even realize it's happening. But it's going to happen because I'm selfish. And if, if you have nothing to offer me, if you can't benefit me, well then, don't worry about it. I'll despise you, cast you to the sides. You can beg on the street. I'm not worried with you. Every human being who's ever lived outside of Christ is that person. My kingdom, my glory, my will be done at any cost. That's you. I'm talking about you. Like if you don't see it, you have to see it. Because if you don't see it, you're never going to give yourself to God. You're never going to trust Him because you don't think it's that bad. I'll just keep this part of my kingdom and call myself a Christian because I really enjoy these things. I've got to provide for my family. That's a good excuse. I've got to make sure I'm safe. That's a good excuse. I've got to have this just in case things go wrong. God fails me. You wouldn't say that part, but that's what you're thinking. We cling to these things. And if you're not actively, proactively finding them in your life and eliminating them, they will destroy you. Kill the sin. Help me kill my sin. I'll be honest, I have times of just fear overtakes me because I know this about myself. I see it in myself. I'll catch myself doing things and thinking, feeling things that are so evil. That's not me. But it's me in those moments and fear overtakes me. God, what's happening? Why do I desire so desperately to establish my kingdom? And if I don't proactively fight those things with self-sacrifice, with generosity, I'll be killed by my sin because I can feel it happening. As dark as all of that sounds, have hope because Jesus has made a way for you to have freedom from those things. Depend on Him for freedom from those things. Once you are in Christ, once you have rendered yourself to God, the the one whose image you've been made, no longer are you hungry for power because Christ has all power. No longer are you desperately fighting for comforts because you find satisfaction fully in Christ. And no longer do we care about our recognition and our fame because we see more clearly than ever when we are all about the glory of God, we find everything we need. The more you're willing to sacrifice to gain God, the more you're willing to give up and kill the flesh to render yourself to God, the more you find everything you thought you were going to gain by establishing your own kingdom. And you're freed to live life making decisions on the basis of glorifying God and not your own glory. Living to grow His kingdom rather than establishing your own. Because Christian, it's not about you. Look in the mirror. See the image of God. Who do you belong to? We have to stop living for ourselves and we also must stop living for the world. Stop living for what you can gain, but also stop trying to gain the world. Unless you're gaining the world for the kingdom of God, not yourself. We live for God. I want to be very clear. You must not miss what Jesus is saying here. Give yourself to God. That's the point. You 
decide, as God has revealed Himself to you, who He is in all of His glory, you decide. Who are you going to live for? Let the world have its stuff. You belong to God. Don't get caught up in the anxious kingdom work of the world. Find peace and joy and freedom in the kingdom work of God. Surrender yourself to the work of the gospel. Live for the kingdom of God. Celebrate Christ in all of life by giving yourself to Him and forgetting everything else. And then as you are made more like Christ, all the good that needs to be in your life will be worked out. You'll be a good father, a good mother, a faithful servant, a good teacher, employee, whatever you do. You'll be good at those things to the glory of God, but only if you render yourself to God instead of fighting to establish your kingdom. So what do you do with your life? Where do you go? Who do you marry? Where do you go to school? What do you eat? What do you drink? What glorifies God? And Lord, kill me if I don't. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your word and how it it reads deep into who we are as wicked human beings, but I'm even more grateful for your gospel that frees us from this condemnation, that we don't stand before you guilty of establishing our own kingdoms because we have seen truth, the light of Christ. And we have been given this opportunity to give ourselves to you in a way that the Spirit has drawn us and we're compelled by your love to not just be reconciled, but to live ourselves, live our lives as ambassadors. Having known the reconciliation, we become ministers of reconciliation, no longer living for ourselves, but living for you. And in Christ, we put to death who we once were. And the life we now live is all to your glory and all to your praise. Let us sing songs of praise. Let us sing songs of worship, knowing who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.